Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. We take up our study again of this book, this story of God's redemption of His people from the land of Egypt where they had been held in slavery for 430 years. And we've noticed along in our study from Jude, the New Testament book, Jude verse 5, that Jesus is the one who as the second person of the Godhead is leading His people out of Egypt. Jesus was redeeming His people from Egypt, doing this battle with the evil forces that held them there. We've been noting along the way too that that these plagues, we're now in the sixth plague, are demonstrations of God's sovereignty, demonstrations of Christ's sovereignty, which is good news for God's people or bad news for those who are resisting Him. He is sovereign nonetheless. He is sovereign regardless. And the question before we launch into the passage, the question we should ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in our hearts is, what difference would it make in my life if I truly believed that Christ was Lord? If I truly believe that Christ is Lord of all and Lord of every part of me, what difference would it make in my life? Well, we've learned to expect the gospel even from the plagues. So let's expect it again even as we pray for illumination, beginning in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 9. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word and giving us the Holy Spirit along with it. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be revealed as Lord in this text and you would show us where you are not being treated as Lord in our lives that we might be encouraged as we follow you, that we might be warned as we may be fleeing from you. We pray for those yet to be saved, those who have not bowed the knee to Christ ever in their lives, that this would be the day of their salvation. Fall upon us, Holy Spirit, and seal your word to our hearts and minds. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. One of the greatest poets America has ever produced was James Weldon Johnson. He died in 1938. He also happened to be African American. And one of the great series of poems he wrote was 
were of those uh, was of those sermons that he heard as a as a child growing up in the African American church. My favorite poem in that collection is of the creation, but another poem is the prodigal. A sermon he heard on the prodigal son, that parable that Jesus told about the young man who could not wait for his father to die in order to receive his inheritance, but he denied, demanded it immediately and then took it and went off and wasted it in riotous living, says the Bible. And it, at a poignant moment in that poem, uh, the narrator says to the prodigal, in James Weldon Johnson's poem, the, the narrator says to the prodigal, young man, young man, your arm's too short to box with God. Young man, young man, your arm's too short to box with God. That is the story of this text, Pharaoh's arm. The magician's arms, the unbelieving Egyptian's arms were too short to box with a sovereign God. But it's not the only news of this text as that was not the only news of the story of the prodigal son. The, the, the young man's arm was not only too short to box with his father, his arm was too short to redeem himself. You might remember from that story of the prodigal son, he finally came to his senses and he started back toward his father's house. But he didn't get all the way back to the father's house before the father saw him on the horizon. And he gathered up his robes in a very undignified way, ran and threw his arms around the prodigal son. And before the prodigal son could prescribe the way he was going to be received back into the house, make me one of your servants is what he had planned. The father said, put a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, kill the fatted calf for him. My son who was dead is now alive. His arms were long enough to redeem his son. And God's arms long enough to redeem these Israelites. God's sovereignty is good news for those who receive the gift of the gospel and keep calling on Him. It's bad news for those who think that you can rebel against Him, reject Him, and live. I want you to see how it comes out in this text, God's sovereignty, especially in His redemption for His people. God's sovereign, God is sovereign, the Lord Jesus is sovereign over evil spirits and over our hearts, the two least conquerable enemies, so we might think. Christ Jesus is sovereign over them both. He's sovereign over evil spirits and he's sovereign over our hearts. Maybe those are two unthinkable facts for you today, but Here's how the first one comes in the text, that Christ is sovereign over evil spirits. Remember, we've learned throughout the study of these, of these plagues that God is making strategic airstrikes against the gods and goddesses of the Egyptian pantheon. And, and that's exactly what God explains in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4. He says, while the Egyptians were still bearing their firstborn, I... 
made a mockery of their gods. I was defeating their gods. It was very clear, clear that God's agenda was to demonstrate to Pharaoh and his people that their gods were of no match to him. And so we've, we've looked at how those plagues are very uh, specifically matched against the supposed gods and goddesses of Egypt, that the, that the guardian god of the Nile was, was of nothing because God turned the Nile into blood, that, that uh, the, the, the frog princess of fertility was made a mockery of as God multiplied frogs across the land and no one could stop them. And so here he turns these, the soot of the lime kilns into boils on the people and even on Pharaoh and demonstrates that their gods and goddesses who were supposed to deliver them from illness and epidemic were ineffective in protecting them. There was the god Amun-Re who was called the, the, the physician who heals. There's the, the god Sekhmet who was uh, a lion-headed goddess who was supposed to invent epidemics on enemies and arrest them among her followers. There was Thoth, who was the founder of the healing arts and established a, a fraternity of physicians within Egypt. None of them was effective. None of them could stop this epidemic of boils. The Egyptians had been deceived. They had been deceived by these gods. Now, we know that these gods are ones that they made up. They made up the stories about them, but the devil is happy with that. The devil is, oh, is, doesn't have to take credit, doesn't have to receive credit for the deception he works. He doesn't care who gets the credit for it as long as deception comes. As long as he can deceive you into thinking that you can handle life yourself, as long as he can deceive you into thinking that you can handle life with the aid of uh, some other substance or by leaning on your funds or other wise counselors, or as long as he can deceive you into thinking that you will be saved and experience life now and into eternity by your decency, as long as he can deceive you into believing any other worldview besides that which is revealed through Christ in the Scriptures. He doesn't care who gets the credit for it. He doesn't care if you turn to those things or to the Ouija board. As long as you are deceived, or as a Christian, as long as you are sidelined. The devil is a deceiver, and he's dangerous. The devil is real, the devil is a deceiver, and he is dangerous. The Bible makes that clear too. He's dangerous enough to keep these children of Israel in bondage, dangerous enough to be able to imitate some of the works that Moses worked. They are powerful. The Bible says in the New Testament that all that is of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those aren't just things that we invent, not just sins that we invent in our self-centeredness. Those are of the devil. That the devil is in the world deceiving, leading astray. That the devil, Peter says, is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. Jesus said the devil asked that he could sift Peter and he said no. The devil brought destruction on the family and the goods of Job. The devil 
is powerful, powerful even to bring harm to Christians, though not eternal destruction. He can bring harm and deception. Not only is your arm too short to box with God, your and my arms are too short to box with the devil. We are no match for him in our own strength. And anyone who is thoughtful enough to look at your own heart and to look at what happens in this world, anyone thoughtful enough to pause and consider will be forced to acknowledge the presence of real and personal evil in this world. Just a short time ago, I heard Scott Simon, journalist on national public radio, not known as a man of faith, Scott Simon admitted after he covered the story of Assad when he unleashed chemical weapons on his own people and we saw those horrific burns and screams of pain. He said he was of a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept. But when he saw what Assad did to his people, he said he was turned around. Here is his own testimony. We watched in silence, that is Scott Simon watching the coverage with his family. I've covered a lot of wars but could think of nothing to say to make any sense. Finally, one of our daughters asked, why would anyone do that? I still avoid saying evil as a reporter, but as a parent, I've grown to feel it may be important to tell children about evil. As we struggle to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior, they may see not just in history, but in our own times. I've interviewed Romeo Dyer, who commanded UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda in 93 and 94 when more than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were then slaughtered over three months. Dyer said that what happened made him believe in evil and even a force he called the devil. He said, I've negotiated with him. I've shaken his hand. Yes, there is no doubt in my mind an expression of evil to me is through the devil and the devil at work and possessing human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. And one of the evenings in my office, I was looking out the window and my senses felt that something was there. Something was there with me that shifted me. I think that evil and good are playing themselves out and God is monitoring and looking at how we respond to it. Even doubters, when they look carefully at this world and with intellectual honesty, must admit there is a real and personal devil who works evil and attacks even Christians. And you are no match and I am no match for him in our own strength. But that same book in which we read that all, is of, all that is of the world is of the devil, in that same book we read, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who led these people out of Egypt. And this is the one who is your king and Lord if you have asked him to come into your life and yielded your life to him. 
And this one not only protects you from all his and all your enemies, this one empowers you to advance against him. It's in this text as well. You notice how skillfully Moses writes the story when he says the magicians, verse 11, could not stand before Moses because of the boils. These magicians, you know, had demonstrated their prowess in imitating some of, some of the plagues. They did it in a typically unbelieving, insane way, making them even worse, making even more blood, making even more frogs and so forth. But here, not only can they not imitate what Moses has brought by God's power on themselves and the Egyptians, they could not resist it. They could not even stand in his presence in contrast to Moses who in verse 10 stood before Pharaoh. Pharaoh presumably not able to stand either. At least he's afflicted by boils. This one from whom, before whom Moses initially was intimidated when God said, you need to go to Pharaoh and command him to let my people go. And Moses said, I can't, I can't do that. I, I, don't have the, I don't have the ability to speak. I'm not a good leader and so forth. Now, this is the one who stands before Pharaoh. And because of the power of God, because of the redeeming Christ, stands when no one else can stand. This is what Christ can do for you. Christ frees you from the power of evil and causes you to advance against it. What is it you're afraid of? Where is it that you are intimidated such that you keep your mouth shut rather than share a word of your testimony? What are you afraid of losing? What are you afraid that people can take away from you? What part of the city are you afraid to go into, to step into with the, the power of the light? When we realize, when we truly believe Christ is Lord, no foe can stand against us. As Luther said, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is Sure, we advance against the darkness and the power of Christ. You know what the Bible says? For, for, for the way we set the devil on foot is by submitting ourselves to God and resisting the devil, and he will flee from us. The devil, the devil himself must flee from the Christian when the Christian is in submission to Christ and commanding the devil to flee. Well, you say, that's hard to believe. I just can't. I, I know it's true, Pastor. I know it's true, but I find it so hard to remember. Well, here's the way the Lord enables you to remember. When we gather for worship, we do things with our, with our bodies in order to reinforce what is true spiritually. And one of those things that we do to reinforce spiritual truth is to give and receive the benediction. And it's in the benediction that we are reminded most powerfully that he has stitched us to Christ, that he has joined us to the overcoming people of God, and he set the devil 
He set the devil running. Where in the world do you get that, Pastor? Look back at the text. What does, what does Moses have to do to spread the dust? He raises his hands with the dust. And as the wind catches it and puts it on the bodies of those Egyptians who refuse to repent. And by the way, some of them did because they're mentioned as those leaving with the Israelites, those Egyptians that did repent. But everyone who did not repent was stricken with these boils. Now, why did Moses do that? Why did he lift his hands with the soot? Because, again, he's mocking the gods of the Egyptians. These so-called Egyptian physicians would take soot and they would lift their hands and they would release it as a benediction. Their thought was that as the soot touched their people, it would bring healing. Moses takes the soot from the lime kilns in which the bricks were made, oppressive, representing their oppression. He takes that very dust, he holds it up, and under the power of God, he releases it. And it brings boils and judgment on those who think that they can oppress God's people. It brings liberation to those who are God's people. And that action of lifting hands and liberating people from all seen and unseen enemies is one that would be prescribed later, just a moment later, in redemptive history at the Day of Atonement. The children of Israel were to, were to sacrifice a lamb, a, a goat, take it into the Holy of Holies, bathe the Ark of the, the, the Mercy Seat or the Ark of the Covenant with its blood. And then the people were to gather outside of the tabernacle and they, they watched waiting longingly for the, for the priest to emerge. And if the priest emerged past that four-inch curtain and lifted his hands, then they knew that the sacrifice had been accepted. And they raised their hands to receive the blessing. And the blessing was this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord turn his countenance toward you and give you peace. That benediction was the possession of God's people in an unbroken tradition up until the Middle Ages when the church, lost as it was in self-salvation, thought we can't trust the people with a benediction even, even any more than we can trust them with the elements of communion. And so the reformers started looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament again, looking at the practices of worship. And Martin Luther said, here is a benedict. Here's what, here's what we need to give back to our people. This is what Jesus did for his disciples in Luke 24. This is the liturgical equip, equivalent of the rainbow where week after week the gospel minister raises his hands, the people receive it as the, the confirmation that the sacrifice has been made, that it's acceptable, that they are not only the blessed people of God, but they are the empowered people of God. They are as empowered as those apostles with God's Jesus' uplifted hand. The sacrifice has been received. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Come to me that I may equip you and cause you to advance against the devil's kingdom. It's what he promises to you. 
That's what he promised us to you in this, this drama of the Lord's Supper. That you come and dine in friendship with God. You come and celebrate your union with Christ. And in union with him, you are, on his, you are in his army that marches victoriously against the devil's kingdom. Well, quickly, the next point is that he's not only sovereign over, over evil spirits, he's sovereign over your heart. Your, your heart, which perhaps today refuses to believe, or your heart, which finds it difficult to believe. Here's the other truth. Here's something else that James Weldon Johnson could have put in his poem. Young man, young man, young woman, young woman. Old man, old woman, your arm's not only too short to box with God and too short to box with the devil, it's too short to box even with your own heart. It takes Christ coming in response to the call of faith, which is just this, I call upon the name of the Lord. And it is he who gives the gift of repentance and the gift of faith unites you to Jesus Christ and gives you everything needful for your salvation in this life and that which is to come. What happened to Pharaoh? We're told multiple times that Pharaoh hardened his heart and now we're told that God hardened his heart. So which is it? The answer is yes. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's another example of what it takes to have a biblical mind. We call them in theology antinomies, anti-nomos, laws, facts, which seem to be opposed to each other, but they're not. They're held together with God's infinite mind. The relationship between evangelism and the sovereignty of God, the relationship between the need to pray and God's foreordained answers, the, the relationship between the dignity of your will and God's sovereign decrees. Ultimately, the, the relationship of those things can only be explained by a sovereign God. And here Pharaoh hardened his heart. Yes, he made choices to harden his heart. And God gave him over to it. The great uh, Westminster divine, one of the authors of the Westminster Confession and Shorter Catechism, Anthony Burgess said, we can't fall off into one or two extremes. We can't think that... Pharaoh alone hardened his heart and God had to respond to that. And neither can we think that God alone hardened his heart and Pharaoh had nothing to do with it. Instead, he says, here's an example of what God does when he, or what happens when God removes his restraining hand. Or as Anthony Burgess called it, his mollifying grace that keeps any of us from becoming as evil as we possibly could. Romans 1 is described this way, he gave them over. What is to prevent you from being given over? What is to prevent you from becoming as evil as you could possibly be? None of your resources. Only Christ. And the only way to get him, the only way to stay near to him, is to continue to call upon his name. His arms are long enough to redeem you. My brother is one of my heroes. 
And about 20 years ago, my brother came to Christ after he had lost his corporate career and his marriages because of alcoholism. God miraculously delivered him from his alcoholism and gave him Christ at the same time. He was a contractor. When he lost his corporate career, he became a contractor, taught himself how to build houses. He built a whole subdivision in northwest Arkansas. He fell off a roof one time and permanently damaged both his shoulders. He can only lift his arms this high. He went back to work. And then one day he was putting down the decking, the last piece of plywood for decking on the house he was roofing. He hoisted the four by eight sheet of plywood up like this and just as he did, wind caught it from the high side of the roof and it was going to blow him off the roof. He didn't have the strength to stop it. So all he could do was call on the name of the Lord. And he said, Lord, if you could deliver this old drunk from his beer, surely you can deliver me from this plywood. It's going to kill me. And the wind shifted. And instead of the wind blowing him off the roof, the wind came from the other direction and blew the plywood down on the roof. And my brother was left like this. And he said, thank you, Lord. He called in the name of the Lord. And the Lord delivered him from his spiritual and physical needs. And he was left with arms receiving a benediction. It's what we do every week. There's only one thing for you to do. It's come to him.